Hello, welcome to Lifting the Rug, talking about things people don't want to talk about but probably should. This is our debut episode and we're talking about the prison system. The prison system in New Zealand is quite a controversial topic at the moment. Since uh, 2000 to 2017, our prison population has doubled, at least. And since 2013, the number of remand prisoners has gone up well over a thousand. And today, breaking news, well this weekend, we've just found out from the budget that Waikaria Prison is not going to be expanded to the tune of $1 billion, but that begs the question, what is the government going to do about it? You know, it seems like we're sort of in a bit of a limbo here. So I am joined by Tanya from Just Speak. Kia ora. And Stephen from Sensible Sentencing Trust. Hi. So my first question is really quite a simple one. Um, let's start. Uh, why is the prison population just so high, higher than was expected? Well, I'll kick off. I'll just just as a bit of context, when I went into Parliament in 1999, there were projections that the prison population would be, I think it was 13,000, higher than it is now, by 2006. And um, the full first term that I was in Parliament, there was an expectation the prison population was going to climb steeply. And there were plans for the prisons that um, are sort of still in some cases, plans. It it turned around and the projections proved to have been far too pessimistic. By about 2004, it was obvious that they weren't going anywhere near what had been anticipated. And I'll venture, it's only a theory, that the 2002 Sentencing Act actually made a difference to a perception by young offenders or offenders that might be a little bit like the changes that may have occurred in the 90s in the US. Um, when there's a big debate about prison, about prison policy or about justice policy generally, there may be a view starts in the community that a new sheriff's come to town, things are toughening up. And I think deterrence matters. Um, we know that it, it won't deter um, sort of inveterate offenders or serious offenders or offenders who've, who've um, got a life pattern that just involves offending. But at the margin, uh, deterrence matters. And it may be that criminal justice debates and political campaigns around criminal justice and tough on crime, Tony Blair's tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime, do make a difference. I partly say that because I went and interviewed people in the US who had been involved with the three strikes legislation and uh, one of the professionals who opposed it but who had been analysing it said we cannot account for what happened um, except that the first few three strikes convictions involved really outlandish, uh, terrible cases. One involved theft of a towel from a motel and one involved theft of a pizza, both of them with a threat as the person left, which turned it into a felony. The headlines went everywhere and it seems that people 
did suddenly feel the law was getting tough because those people went away for 25 years. And I've always thought there's an awful lot more in criminal justice and its unpredictability about waves of sentiment than social science usually allows for. Okay, Tanya, would you like to respond to that? Yeah, I mean, I think Stephen is entitled to his opinions, but the data that we have shows that the crime rate has trended down since the 1970s in New Zealand and the rising of the prison population responds to our legislative settings rather than anything to do hang on, with... Hang on, it has not trended down since the 1970s. It was trending... Okay, can we just up. let... Tanya, finish and yeah. Let thanks you for letting me get really far into my first um, my first comments. Um, yeah, so um, it absolutely there has been a downward trend in the crime rates, and um, while it levelled out around two thousand and seven, um, there are the the representation of the prison population really reflects our legislative settings and changes to both sentencing acts as well as most recently the bail amendment act um, and and changes to the way that parole um, settings have worked. So. Um, whether there are minor deterrent effects at the margins doesn't address the fact that deterrence as a concept broadly has been debunked in the social sciences and that most most offenders do not weigh up the, the consequences of their actions um, before deciding whether to commit an offence or not. So it's <clears throat> the, the, uh, in large part what we're seeing is a collective response to crime that serves to increase the prison population and in doing so put expand the costs on the tax pay, expand the cost to, to communities um, and investing more time and more money in a system that ultimately does not serve to reduce reoffending or addresses the causes of offending. Okay, well, just for the sake of time, I'll let you have a quick response to that before we get on to the next question. I think one of the reasons people keep this stuff under the rug is that mostly people on each side trade assertions and slogans, and it's easy for me to do that too, but a lot of what you just said are social science assertions. Uh, when I went in to study this stuff deeply, uh, I was really shocked at the lack of rigour in it. Um, I mean, a simple one would be judging prisons by whether people rehabilitate. It's like judging a hospital by pe whether people die in them. It's not their purpose. People, people, no, go to die in people die in hospitals, and whether your hospital has a high death rate or a low death rate depends on the serious, you know, the severity of the kind of people who go there. Prisons don't rehabilitate because their primary purpose is incapacitation, deterrence, and retribution or revenge. Rehabilitation is a nice have add-on at the end, but there's almost no systems in the world that reliably rehabilitate, and the rate of spontaneous rehabilitation around the world is remarkably stable. That's interesting because it's part of the, the Department of Corrections' own mandate is rehabilitation. Of course it's a mandate because every politician wants to look noble. It's virtue signalling to say it. There's no... Every, every, all around the world they say their purpose is rehabilitation, but the reality is that it's the fourth and last in the list, and the reason people want... Prisons is for punishment. Yeah, and that's why they don't work, because punishment ultimately serves to reinforce the conditions that lead to fending in the first place. Okay. So let's well, move on to... Don't see any argument on that front. We've got it encapsulated. We've, we've, got the, we've got the disagreement on both sides very, very nicely. Now, I want to bring up the next question. So... It's pretty obvious. We've got it right here. We've got the Bail Amendment Act of 2013. Now, 
the number of remand prisoners. Now, these now just to make it clear to listeners, remand prisoners are not people who have been sentenced. They are people who are in prison on bail, who the judge for some reason has decided not to let them out in society, um, and the numbers since that law has passed have gone. I'm going to say it. I don't know if it's journalistic, but they've gone through the roof. Um, so the question now that, again, by the current government is being ifed and ummed, but we don't have any decision yet, is should the Bail Amendment Act of 2013 be modified or repealed? I will start with you, Tanya. Yeah, I think we believe it ought to be repealed given that it has led to a drastic increase in the remand population uh, that is entirely disproportionate to the costs that are meted out both to the taxpayer but also to the people who serve those sentences um, without really... Um, without that having been the intent of this legislation and without consideration for what the long-term consequences of that are, um, while it was really a, a knee-jerk piece of re- legislation passed in response to one particularly high-profile case um, of someone offending while on bail, um, uh, someone who was, uh, had been held for harassing and, I think, assaulting a young woman um, and then was released on bail and killed her, um, which basically led to, you know, one, this one particular instance led to a kind of a rethinking of the entire system. And while it was intended, certainly in the, in the political commentary around it being introduced to reduce risks to the public for people who were being held for violent, uh, for violent offences, um, where there was a genuine risk to the public, the risk, the kind of culture of risk aversion that that created amongst the judiciary has meant that more people are being held um, in remand, even when there is not a genuine concern about their risk to the public, but simply that the burden of proof is now reversed. Um, and that has interacted with the uh, lack of available housing for people um, who ought to otherwise... Um, not be held on remand to, to receive bail, um, either because of the interaction with the homelessness crisis in New Zealand and obviously the overlap between um, people who are offending and the, homelessness po- the homeless population, as well as issues as we've been discovering today with um, whether housing New Zealand properties are considered appropriate um, for bail um, and um, in general just the, the, the kind of the lack of suitable housing um, also for electronic monitoring. So some addresses are not available for electronic monitoring because electronic monitoring equipment doesn't work in those addresses, with, particularly if there are rural areas. So um, it is not actually in anyone's interest for people to, um, for our remand population to be so high, um, not only because, of, of course, it costs a lot and it's, it has contributed significantly to the uh, the, the growing in the prison population, but also because the risks of reoffending, of recidivism, uh, are particularly high for people who are being held remand on as in, as first time offenders. So, if you want to help people transition away from uh, a life of crime or away from offending, um, particularly early on with minor offences or low level offences, then getting them bail is a really important way to help help do that. Okay, Stephen, would you like to chime in on that? Yeah, I've um, got no brief on sensible sentencing um, we act for and and uh, admire, but I don't support um, the current bail situation. I think it's a disgrace for the courts. Uh, all the senior judges should be feeling deeply ashamed of themselves because a large part of that population is because the system has 
become so constipated, it's just so slow to deal with proceedings. When I started as a young lawyer, a typical serious case was over within three months of arrest. It's, it's not infrequent now that it could be up to three years for a serious not guilty trial, and that is a deep shame to the legal system. So I'd be, um, I, th I think the problem for the government is if they just, just release people on bail now, they'll have a, a torrent of these awful cases where something goes wrong. Um, the really hard thing is to try and get the courts to get back into delivering prompt justice. Okay. Now, I want to get to the elephant in the room. Um, and I had tried to get someone of Māori descent in here because I would feel more comfortable, but I am just going to have to make do with three Pākehā. Māori <laughs> um, make up 51% of the prison population, and that they make up 15% of our general population. And some other stats I looked at says that one in, th uh, one in three Māori are the victim of crime compared to one in four Pākehā. Why are Māori so involved in prisons? Um, we'll start with you, Stephen. <laughs> well, it's, a, um, it's quite a way from, from prison policy. Um, a personal theory... Um, it, it's very difficult in all societies that we compare ourselves with to find a, a difference from that pattern when a family structure breaks down. And I'm going to sound like family first, but and and, I, and I don't, it's not easy for a government to change it. But when you have a whole lot of feckless males who don't have to take responsibility for their children and a whole lot of single mothers, and you have it over generations, you have a population that's primed to always be on the wrong side of the law. Could I just yeah. quickly put in there, though, um, I'm just going to spit out something that's objectively true. Māori are generally, unfortunately, of a lower socioeconomic group than other ethnic groups. In New Zealand, do you think that has anything to do with it? Yeah, but I see. I'm old enough to think back to the a book called Crime in New Zealand, which was put out by Sir Ralph Hannon or Justice Department under Ralph Hannon in the mid '60s, and it, it was almost a celebration. We were one of the lowest crime countries in the world. Um, we'd had we had a murder rate of two per hundred thousand. Two, sorry, two murder. To average murder rate of two per year since 1920. So we were a very low... Murder's quite a good benchmark because murder's nearly always reported. We were a very low crime society and Māori had a lower rate of um, offending and a lower rate of imprisonment at that stage than the European population. But that was right at the end of a long period when there, well, there was still a tribal structure at... Um, Māori still had quite a high level of discipline, if you like, through tribal authorities. And I, I grew up in a town where Māori weren't allowed to drink. Um, the, the king country was, by Māori choice, dry for Māori, and it was illegal to sell liquor to Māori. So there was a whole lot of, if you like, paternalistic or maternalistic 
constraints that broke down and broke down very rapidly in the 70s after um, the DPB became a way of life for many and after a substantial collapse in the family structure. Okay. But that, um, doesn't, that doesn't say what should be done. All that says is your question was why. Mm. Why? I mean, I certainly, I certainly think that looking back at the history of uh, the experience of Māori in New Zealand um, across the second half of the 20th century provides some indicators as to why um, they, why we imprison um, so many more Māori than Pākehā that it corresponds to um, social dislocation. It corresponds to um, the uh, Deprived, people being deprived of their land, people deprived of, of resources that were avail available to them beforehand, to the um, pressures that those put on families, to the dislocation of iwi and hapu, um, to the movement of Māori who were encouraged to move into cities, um, and to the social and economic pressures that were that were a way of life for so many whānau, on top of a complex history of colonisation and racism, um, to the extent that you know, what we see now is a reflection, you know, long-term of intergenerational harm. Um, but now what we see is not just, you know, the reflection of how families, successive families have been, um, I guess, have been denied opportunities to be able to make good lives for themselves and find opportunities to um, exit cycles of violence, but also that um, the the over-representation of Māori has become a self-reinforcing logic because... Um, People, particularly in policing, you see that young Māori feel, and and it is borne out to some degree by the number of um, arrests are made and, and charges that are pressed, are, are feel targeted, and that fuels um, their interaction with the justice system, and they're entering into the justice system pipeline. Um, but the other big glaring hole is that seventy percent of people who are in the youth court jurisdiction who, have, who are in the youth court um, have a care and protection record um, and there is a undeniable pipeline that starts when young people enter um, state the state state care systems um, and then find themselves fundamentally um, transitioning from a, a system of state care to state control that they um, are in part of group homes or in foster care um, and, but particularly in state care, I think, is where that, that pressure is most obviously exerted. Um, find themselves in the new justice system, then find themselves in the adult criminal justice system, and then once you're in that system for long enough, you've been dislocated from school, you've been dislocated from job opportunities, you've been dislocated from your family, um, the, your ability to reintegrate in a way, to find a new way of living is extremely difficult. So um, there is no easy... Answer. I mean, it's a complicated interaction of a lot of different factors, um, but it certainly starts with history, um, and hopefully, it ends with Maori being at the decision-making table when it comes to how we build a criminal justice system that doesn't hurt so many people and doesn't cost us so much. Yeah, the thing, the thing about these topics, and this is why this will be a series, is it seems pretty obvious that. These issues are not isolated. They are connected. And one that I would definitely like to bring up is drugs, which is going to be our next, ep um, next episode, by the way. Um, how much does arresting people for drugs put pressure on 
the justice system and um, how are how do our drug laws affect our prison population? Stephen, can we start? I, I don't know what the current stats are. When I was much more actively involved in it, I think about nine percent of the prison population were there for what were called drug-related offences. Um, that was pretty low internationally. I mean, 27% was the equivalent figure in the United States at the time. And um, the police would say that quite often um, a drug offence had been included or had been a, a way of actually catching someone and they wanted them for something else. So I don't know whether we've got a big, easy um, got gain if we reduce the... Um, extent of the focus on drugs, particularly now that methamphetamine is, is in there. Um, if you hear experienced old police that saying, uh, talking about our prisoning rate, they will say that the reversal of the favourable trend actually coincided with meth coming in and that a lot of the offending is of a kind where no one in the community is going to say that person should be out because it's so extreme. So we have the, the drug thing used to be look like it would be uh, quite a, a good, a simple reform to reduce pressure on the prison population. But I doubt whether it's as easy now. Yeah, I think I think Stephen's right in that the meth crisis essentially in New Zealand has contributed to the number of, to the to the proportion of offending that is related to um, to drugs, and that meth the nature of methamphetamine makes it much harder to tackle because. Um, because supply um, can be scaled up so quickly, and because the consequences of meth addiction are so can be so catastrophic for people and for families, and that can have this spillover effect, um, you know, into people's lives. So um, it, that is something that almost yeah you can you can sort of almost see when it started to come online in terms of where the, uh, where statistics the the um, proportion of drug related offending went and the seriousness of the offending. Um, but it doesn't, I mean, all it does, I guess, is force us to have another a harder conversation or a longer conversation about the way that we respond to drug addiction um, and how we, how we want to, as a society, um, cope with the inevitability of substances in our community, that alcohol is something that is responsible for a huge volume of criminal offending, but no one is seriously considering criminalising alcohol, to my knowledge. Mm. Um, so because, and, you know, we can talk about how we deal with alcohol-related harm, but when it comes to drugs, I think that um, you know, many many jurisdictions have found that that um, treating drugs as a health issue would um, would help to reduce the burden on the criminal justice system, but also would would be far more effective than helping people to move away from drugs if that's something that they wanted. So, um, well, not not that many. I mean, no, not the, that many the, have the, had the, an opportunity the, the poster, to the poster child at the moment is Portugal. Portugal. Yes, and there are some. I mean, one of the great things about the US is that it's a laboratory for experiments <laughs> state law. You know, yeah. It can, can vary. Uh, but with, you know, the Americans are probably going to stall in their, de, in, in their drug thing yeah. because of the opioid epidemic. You know, they, they're losing 50% more now to opioids than to mm. gun violence. Mm. It's, there's, the, the, the problem for I, I just think as a politician, it'll be a very brave politician who goes seriously into decriminalisation of anything other than something like 
cannabis, which makes people dopey. Yeah. But I think cannabis is a serious problem for Maori families, for young Maori kids. And I don't think that we're going to say in 20 years' time that was a good idea. Well, I don't think the problem is decriminalisation doesn't decriminalisation allows people to be honest about their addiction and the, their need to get help. Mm. So it's not. I don't think anyone would argue that we want to encourage more young people to um, indiscriminately use marijuana, but the, that the argument is that if you treat it as a health issue and destigmatize it, you assist people in not being I, reliant I, on it. I'm well aware that's the argument. <laughs> yes, yeah, so and, and I'm well aware of how optimistic we can be. I mean, I'm, I was But it's not working now, so it's worth a shot, well, surely. We don't, know, we don't know the counterfactual. I mean, there are societies that become completely consumed by drugs. I mean... The opium war 150 years ago was because the Chinese tried to stop opium because it was shattering their society, whereas mm. it wasn't shattering India where it was grown. I mean, mm. there are there are lots of things that we don't know about social interactions. And taking examples from offshore, I'm always very careful of ever since I visited Amsterdam on on drug law and prostitution. Yeah, there are lots of things we don't know, but we do know that treating drugs as a criminal justice issue is putting enormous strain on the criminal justice system and not helping a lot of people get the help well, that they it? need. Is it? I yeah. Mean, no, the police the police hardly bother with cannabis offences. No, I'm not saying cannabis, I'm saying drugs in general. Well, drugs, the, the, the only one that there's going to be a serious legalisation for is cannabis. Yeah, the, no, other, the, yeah. other, the other ones, I think you could easily see political demand for more stringent law. Okay. I, just one thing that... Um, it was a very interesting to, uh, anecdote that um, a lot of people discussed recently was the availability of meth and the speed at which young people could get hold of meth as opposed to getting hold of cannabis, um, that it was about a 10-minute turnaround for meth or half-an-hour turnaround versus you know hours for, for marijuana. And um, it, it does demonstrate that to some degree, if you want to tackle the scourge that, that methamphetamine addiction has on all its communities, uh, acknowledging that people use substances and that uh, dealing with them as a health issue and regulating and bringing money into the health system that would help you address that would be one way of addressing the ha more harmful substances okay. at the other end of the spectrum. The problem there is that it's really easy to get it while it's highly illegal and very dangerous. However, do you think a tax system is going to compete? Mm. I mean, regulated, regulated supply when it's, when as you say, mm. the unregulated supply is already... Um, cheap and quick. Yeah, I mean, it it's has going to be yeah. very hard to make a regulated supply work. Okay. Yeah. I'm quickly just going to have to put the brakes on that because we're cutting into next week's episode. <laughs> oh, next, oh, next episode. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> because, uh, yeah, as you can see, these issues are interconnected. I just want to throw this quick stat out there. Um, around 60% of people serving sentences and orders in the community have an identified alcohol and, or drug problem. So this is from the Department of corrections. So the two are definitely connected mm. and we're going to spend a whole episode on that. So final wrap-ups. Um, we've got us. I think both of you would agree, we've got ourselves in a real conundrum in this country. Mm -hmm. um, we, we have to make a choice, but the government seems reluctant to make a choice. I would say they're going to end up with the worst of all possible worlds. They're going to end up with a strident cry from the public for more severe sentencing. They're going to end up with a crime rates that are increasing and stories that relate it to people who are out who wouldn't have been out if they haven't changed the law. They're going to end up with overcrowded prisons and, and scandals in prisons because they're dithering. And I would say they should have said, we will build as many prison cells as the system needs. Uh, there will always be a prison cell for you if you offend. 
but meanwhile, we will be working on speeding up the justice system and making making um, consequences of crime immediate, sure, but not severe. My my problem has been we mistake severity for effectiveness. The crime sentence should be a lot less, but a lot more certain and a lot more immediate. Okay, Tanya, your final thoughts? Oh, well, thankfully I'm a lot more optimistic and I believe that the government shares to some degree my optimism that we won't keep investing money in a prison system that fundamentally does not contribute to addressing the causes of offending. Um, I agree those sentences should be shorter, though, so that's one one thing that we can agree on. Um, but I think that what we do need to see is where they will invest the money that they would save in not building a mega prison in effective, effective alternatives. Um if this is a government who has talked a lot about their their investment in children and wanting to see good outcomes for children, children whose parents go to prison are eight to ten times more likely to go to prison themselves. If we want to put money into and put time and thought into a system that will serve tamariki now um, in the future, then we need to start reckoning with the effects of criminal justice system, not just on people who are serving those sentences, but their families. Um, I think it's as yet unclear exactly what they are willing to do and where they are willing to listen to experts, um, whether they will take the Prime Minister's, the Chief Science Advisor's paper as a starting point for understanding how we can respond to data, not dogma. Um, but, um, uh, but it is unclear at this point exactly what pieces of legislation are on the table and um, what other initiatives they're willing to fund in order to help us transition towards a more effective and a more compassionate system. Well, that's all we have time for, and I'm sure you all have plenty to think about. We've had a lot of discussion here. So, next week, drugs. Fun, until they're not. We talk about the consequences of drugs in our society, the drug laws, and what we can do to take care of our citizens. So, thank you for joining me on Lifting the Rug. I've been Amy Eastwood. Goodbye.